0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midia Meets podcast where we speak to all sorts of people who work within sound and music. On the show this time we have Henry Kaiser who is a tremendously talented guitarist, uh, composer and improviser who has recorded over 300 albums uh, during his career and um, he's worked on a phenomenal range of things with all sorts of artists um, as well as interviewing some of his heroes such as Derek Bailey and Terry Riley. He's also been scuba diving for over 20 years in Antarctica and uh, has a tremendous wealth of things that he's done over his uh, time. Uh, you can support the podcast if you'd like. Uh, you can support via PayPal or by Ko-fi. Um, you can share and like the podcast. That also really, really helps. Uh, also, any comments are appreciated, good or bad. Um, but let's get on with the show. And the first thing I asked Henry was about his musical beginnings.
1: You know, I didn't pay much attention to sounder music when I was a little kid, really little. Um I think it's when I started to see things on television that had music with interesting timbres mm-hmm. uh, when I started to be aware of sound you know the the, the sounds of spaceships blowing up in Japanese monster movies or, or monsters screaming or electronic music um, I was always attracted to thing with things with interesting timbres and tone colors so that's I'm kind of deaf to melody, harmony, and rhythm. I I have kind of perfect timbre discrimination and I, I kind of convert everything to timbre to understand it.
0: <laughs> that's brilliant. I think it's really interesting that you say that you, you didn't have much sort of influence back then or like, um, you know, you didn't have much consciousness of music. I think that's a really interesting aspect to sort of maybe allowed your brain to develop in, in a very different way.
1: You know, and I didn't have much concept of soundscape in nature which is where music comes from until I was 11 years old and I learned to scuba dive and to stay alive and be safe in the underwater environment it's important to be aware of sound (laughs) and I was really excited about being in this other world that was like almost a science fiction world to go underwater so um I think I became very aware of sounds in the environment there and then I would hear after that, notice the soundscape in the city or the countryside or the forest and I looked at music in a different way after that, the kind of a, the heavy dose of nature you get when you're underwater.
0: Yeah, what sort of sounds are you looking out for, Someone I've never scuba dived at all, what sort of sounds and, and things do you look out for down there when you're in the water?
1: Well, you hear the, if you're where there's waves, if you're the beach, you hear the waves breaking overhead. You hear sounds fish make, you hear sounds shrimp make, you hear the sounds of the other divers breathing. Uh, there's lots of sounds you hear. And you're, you're on more of a survival footing than a little kid growing up in a, you know, a safe city in California.
0: Yeah, I've often sort of been swimming in the sea and I, there's definitely a feeling of This is not like our domain. This is not like a human domain here. We are like very, um, yeah, we're very, um, I don't know, we stick out like a sore thumb probably to the underwater creatures, don't we? Mm -hmm.
1: And then the music that I was exposed to, say, from age 12 or 13 on, I was growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we had two things that a lot of parts of the United States did not did not have. We had the beginnings of freeform radio where they could play John Coltrane next to Ravi Shankar, next to the Grateful Dead, next to BB King. Everything was valued the same. And late night programs on that type of radio, they would play experimental and crazy electronic music and things interspaced with all of that. We also had a listener-sponsored non-commercial radio where there were programs of experimental music, and I started listening to that right away on the radio in seventh or eighth grade. I heard it by accident, and I was like, this is what I like. I want more. Yeah. So I was an, I was an obsessive listener to all kinds of music that was interesting to me. A lot of it was improvised, or a lot of it was music that had unusual timbres that wouldn't, weren't the timbres you'd hear on a TV show, though those kind of things crept in later in the 60s into American television. Um, and so I was just an obsessive listener, and I didn't start to play guitar till I was 21 uh, in college, so. Amazing. Yeah, I think um, from
0: what I know of San Francisco, it seems to be like a very um, incredible place, really, incredible place. And can can you just paint a picture of what it was, what would the San Francisco Bay Area was like then for someone who's never been? Like, what did it look like, sound like? Well, you
1: know, it could could be like being in London in the 60s because I could, you know, I could go see all the San Francisco type electric music bands. I could go to concerts of experimental music. Uh, I could go to concerts of jazz. I could – because the Ali Akbar College of Music was there, there were a lot of concerts for the Indian community and people who are pretty specialized into different kinds of Hindustani classical music. But, you know, you, you could get the same kind of stuff in London. So it's just a different cultural mix but as rich and diverse Cultural mix as you would have gotten in the '60s in London.
0: Amazing, amazing. Yeah, you mentioned. Um, didn't you work with Ali Akbar Khan?
1: I produced. I I produce a lot of record albums, and I've always done that. And I did produce three or so Ali Akbar Khan record albums, and I got to know him. And uh, uh, I grew. I'd grown up listening to him before that. So it's, it's this thing I have where I seem to graduate be attracted to heroes of mine and either and get to collaborate with them either in doing production work or playing music yeah, together with this them. This is a
0: fascinating hap- character trait that you have, I think.
1: It happens a lot. I have a few friends who have that too, but uh, I really you know, most of my main heroes uh, who were alive while I was I while I was alive, I've got to play with. And record with or perform with and meet.
0: That's so incredible. It's such an admirable thing to uh, be able to... I mean, how... I, I know it must be different for every single one of them, but how would you approach, say, I want to work with this person? Like, how would you get to them and or, like, persuade them?
1: You know, I would just... Go up to people. I, I You know, I, I met Richard Thompson by going up to him at a solo concert and said, Hey, I'm Henry Kaiser. Want to do something together sometime? And he said, Sure, let's make a record.
2: And <laughs>
1: I, I found people again and again, if you just walk up to somebody and ask them if they want to do something, um, sometimes you get to do something with them. And then maybe they introduce you to somebody else and you get to do something with them. Um, and it's just it's just always always been like that or you know are people who are heroes of mine who i would be chicken to ask say the pianist cecil taylor i you know there's a chance to be in a big orchestra thing of his where he wants a lot of performers so of course you go sign up and then you get to play with him in the big orchestra but uh you know I, i remember i would buy a lot of improvised music from the uk lps back in the early 70s and i'd Bought some Derek Bailey on Incus Records, which he was selling, and I'd write to him and then he'd be really friendly. And I'd say, Well, I'm coming on over. Can I interview you? He said, Yeah, sure, come on over, bring your guitar. <laughs> and then he introduced me to other people, and I go meet John Stevens. And John C- Stevens says, Oh, we're playing at the plow tonight with Paul Rutherford. Why don't you come and play with us too? And, you know, in that improvised music community, people would just ask you to play with them. I remember Fred Frith emailed me that they'd lost a bass player in Henry Cow, and they had a a French tour. Said, "Can you come and play play guitar, and I'll play bass?" And I was like, "Sure." And and we hadn't met.
0: <laughs> it's such an incredible um, thing. Uh, I think most people are quite. I guess most people would not do that due to the fear of rejection, of the possibility that the person's going to say, "Oh no, I don't want to work with you." So, I'd say, like, for most people. Everyone, we we're a bit scared to, to, to ask those questions to the pe- those people.
1: You know, my heroes, whether that was like for how they made music, when people like Jerry Garcia or Michael Bloomfield in the US, they would play, they would just meet their heroes at a folk club or something and play with them and you know or a blues club in michael bloomfield's case in chicago so it it was a normal kind of thing and it was the thing that i would read about people doing interviews so it seemed like that's what you were supposed to do
0: amazing amazing and you also yeah. talked about um when you've worked with when you've worked with people before the next time you work with them you said you like to do something different with them
1: I think the main motivation for me uh, is having fun. And so I will suggest whatever I think is gonna be the most fun. And I'm not thinking about selling records or whatever too much, except how it leads to having more fun. So I, Cecil Taylor, to come back to him again, uh, in a film about him in a documentary and interview, he says, you know, if it's not fun, why do it? And I think it's just, I've just been looking for fun, fun tropic with people and that's that's what happens. I
0: totally can relate to that right now. Like I've definitely been on a similar thing. I mean, I've read that that quote that you've said a few times in in different um, places and it really does resonate. And in fact, there's a singer right now called uh, Self Esteem. Um, Her name's Rebecca Taylor, I think. And she's just written an album called Prioritize Pleasure um with this i think with a quite a similar ethos to actually i've been spending way too much life of my time being over analytical and overthinking things actually what really matters is just having fun
1: you know i don't i'm not fortunately i'm not a singer songwriter i don't have to think about self-expression or having anything to say i just think about doing my job which is getting out of the way so music shows up from wherever it comes from, (laughs) whatever that may be. So so I'm not worrying about stuff like a goal or what I wanna do, I'm just having fun and I'm treating everything like it's a science experiment to try something that hasn't been done before to see what kind of new results I'll get.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such an admirable way to approach making music you also there was a time as well when you taught a class of how to sound like yourself
1: um uh, i did know i made a, t- a class of how, to, how people can sound like themselves using me as an example i just want to sound like myself though i you know that i can imitate a lot of people, if I want to, but I, I just want to, and that's fun. But I just want to sound like myself. So I, I've, I've taught a class on how to sound like your, like yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, and, and what were the? Sorry, I, yeah, i sort of misworded that. Um, um, but yeah, um, what, what, what what are those things like? What do you say to how, how do people sound more like themselves?
1: You know, I've got my outline, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let me just see. Well, looking. At my notes on how to sound like yourself, it's don't worry about melody, harmony, and rhythm, but think about other concepts that are just as important as those. And if I was to go down a list, I'd say space and emptiness in music, timing, timing in the sense the way a great comedian can tell a joke better than a poor comedian, and studying different kinds of timing, timbre, tone color, Dynamics, volume, ornamentation, bending and articulation, uh, duration of performance, shapes, if you see music as shapes, narrative, storytelling, context and frame of the music, what's the purpose or teleology of the music, is it trance music, is it dance music, is it ritual music, is it entertainment? Interaction with room acoustics, the audience is part of the music, um, your instrument as a partner. Uh, and I think things to do are to, to be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. Carlos Santana said your grandmother should be able to recognize your playing if she heard it on the radio. <laughs> <out. So laughs> That's pretty <a> Good, good <laughs> point. You know, take chances. Don't be afraid of risks. Be eclectic and broaden your horizons. Take new ideas from new places. Play with feeling and commitment. To quote Albert Eiler, music is not about notes; it's about feeling. Improvise. I think that's one of the keys to sounding like yourself. Play with together with as many new people as possible. Listen and discover. Search for new things. So,
0: fantastic.
1: That's 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 looking at my outline from the class. Yeah, that's- <laughs> I'll, I'll copy. I'll I'll copy that and send it to you.
0: Cool. So, yeah, you picked up your first guitar in, I think you've actually written the date, I think October the 10th, 1971. Is that correct?
1: Actually, no, it turns out it's November 1st, oh, to correct it. Okay. It's a, it, it's after, because I went to a concert of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band with Fred McDowell opening for them on the 31st. And then I it just made me decide to go buy, buy a guitar, which I still have um, that, that day.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazing.
1: The next day. Oh, yeah. Geez. And then I what I, I just pretty much wanted to do exactly what I do now exactly what I do now so that's what I've done what,
0: how would you describe what you do now
1: uh, play music that's improvised play music that's experimental play with people that I socially enjoy playing with and artistically enjoy the collaboration with uh, in the Genres of music that I'm crazy about, because and I've, you know, besides being able to play rock or blues or free improvisation or fusion jazz, I'm crazy about things like uh, Korean shaman music, trance music from Madagascar, um, and um, a lot of those. Those I've played with a lot of those kind of musicians that who I was really interested in before I ever played guitar. In fact, with some of the musicians. Uh, a couple I've recorded with who I uh, loved before I played guitar in in weird genres like that. So pretty much do exactly what I like and I find you know I find new things and I get to do new things. Um, but uh, yeah, same old job. <laughs> We've well, done incredibly. I mean.
0: Prolific isn't really even the word. I mean, I think there needs to be like a new version of prolific, which relates to your musical output.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of my heroes are as pro- prolific as me. You know, you if I if, at if, like the British examples, you know, Evan Parker is as prolific as me, and uh, quite a few people. Mm. Quite a, Quite a few people are.
0: I think it was something like six or seven records per year since.
1: More than that. It's about three hundred and fifty albums since nineteen seventy seven. Wow. It's a lot. That is a lot, yeah. I mean It's a lot. That's how ma- that's how many I'm on. I'm counting every single thing I'm on. It's probably about three sixty or seventy. I have no I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even have them all. I mean, in the
0: in those I mean that's like a debt. You, you could always have like an album a year. You could like you could do something where it's an album sorry, yeah, an album every day for a whole year. Um, I mean what are the salient albums out of out of that collection without asking too much of a generic question. You know I,
1: I don't think about them afterwards. The stuff I did in Madagascar with David Lindley was really good and I tend to like things that I've done with heroes of mine so like my duets with Derek Bailey called Wire Forks, or all the stuff I've done with Wadada Leo Smith. Um, those are some of my favorite things. The stuff David Lindley and I did in Norway um I, I don't think about them much. They're, you know, they, they go off and have their own lives without me.
0: It's <laughs> like that. Um yeah, you did so in the 90s you went to Madagascar and uh, uh 1991 in Madagascar, 1994 in Norway. And it,
1: with David Lindley, yeah. yeah, we made a lot. We made we made a number of records for the Shawnee Record Label. About a dozen Madagascar records came out of that trip, and two albums from Norway. Fantastic! It
0: seems like you have this uh, ability to sort of transcend different cultures and countries, and just um, integrate with people.
1: Well, if I'm very selective about the kinds of music that I do with those people, yes, like. Good luck me playing Norwegian dance music. Norwegian Norwegian trance fiddle music, uh, like on the Hardinger fiddle, that's easy to play with. If stuff's trance music, it's easy to play with. I don't know why if that's because the the spirits show up and do the work for me <laughs> or, or if there's just uh, uh, statistical characteristics of that kind of music that happen to overlap with what I know how to do. I have no idea. Yeah,
0: because you talked about being in um, being on stage in an interview and about um, sort of not
1: really being in control of what you're physically doing.
0: What what is happening when you're uh, improvising? What is happening?
1: I just get out of the way. It's like the, you know, basically it's the shoemaker who puts the shoes on the workbench, leaves a saucer of milk on the floor, goes to sleep, wakes up in the morning. The elves drank the milk and they fix the shoes. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, you know what happens in the moment I have no idea I just try to get out of the way mm. and how do you get out of the way how 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 would one get out
0: of the way of an improv performance
1: I don't know I don't know because I'm out of the way I'm gone
0: disappeared.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've disappeared I've di- I disappear
0: <laughs> I mean a lot of people sort of call it channeling don't they when they sort of make things uh, in the moment that appear to have not been made by them
1: here's a weird example a friend of mine who's a professor of Korean music, um, Sue Leon Leo. She um, plays the hagum, the Korean fiddle. And she says to me the other day, she says, I listened to John Coltrane, Love Supreme for the first time. How he played gugak phrasing, why he played gugak phrasing. Now gugak phrasing is Korean traditional music fl- phrasing. Wow. And I said, well, so you, I said, so you let me think here. I wonder what he could have heard. Let's see, 1964. He had not been to Korea on tour. Uh, I wonder what records were out. And I looked at what records were out of Korean traditional music. And there was nothing he could have heard very easily. Unlikely, he could have heard the type of phrasing that he plays in a few places on the Love Supreme album, which is very strange. So my theory is that... um, I said, Suyon, so, know, my theory is he was a Christian Baptist background American and he'd come out of having drug problems and he was had asked for the Lord's help and was thanking the Christian God for it and Love Supreme's kind of both an invocation and a thanks from Coltrane's point of view to uh, the Christian God as he sees it. And I says, well, so my theory is he got the Korean Gugak spirits instead, showed up, <laughs> and they and they and they didn't know it, and they they passed those phrases on to him. I, I have you know, so I have no idea how that stuff works.
0: Yeah, he got <laughs> the wrong area code when he was calling out the, the
1: gods. I, exactly, but it worked out very well for him, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. there's actually a
0: festival down the road uh, from here uh, that goes on every year, a jazz festival called Love Supreme.
1: Uh, what city are you in? I'm
0: in Brighton on the south, You're in south coast of England. Yep. Very much, the um, I think, the, the English equivalent of San Francisco, as far as I'm aware, for lots of reasons.
1: I've been, I've, been, I've been there. I remember playing with John Stevens there, driving from London in a car with him and a couple of other guys. Oh, cool. Long time ago. Long time ago.
0: Yeah, it's a great place. It's really good. It's nice to be by the seaside. I'm a country boy, but um, I do appreciate the sea. You, I mean, let's. Uh, if we go back a little bit to the diving, um, I think you watched.
1: Yeah. So, 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 if you sat next to me on an airplane and we started talking, and you know, you said what you did, I probably just say I'm a diver. If somebody asks me what I do, I'm a diver because that's my first identity. I mean, I'm a musician. I'm a filmmaker too, but I tend not to mention that because I've been a diver since I was 11, so longer than anything else. And I'm still a diver in the United States Antarctic program doing scientific diving under Antarctic ice. I taught scientific diving for 17 years at UC Berkeley before I first started going to Antarctica in 2001. So I really am a diver. That's really, that's really my real job, but I spend more time doing music probably.
0: <laughs> Absolutely incredible, like the journey that, that you've had, um, the diving alone, uh, just phenomenal! Like you've worked for National Geographic, um, you uh, you had an Academy Award nomination f- for producing Encounters at the End of the World. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did how did you? I mean, I, I know you watched a film called Sea Hunt when you were a boy and got inspired and wanted to dive from then on. How did where did the Antarctica come? When did Antarctica come from?
1: Well, Antarctica showed up. 2001 um, this the scientific diving program I taught in at the University of California Berkeley was was ended and there was no more scientific diving there and I accidentally just kind of stumbled into doing work under the ice in Antarctica I went there our first on an artists and writers grant from the uh, National Science Foundation. And I said, well, I can dive too. And I showed him my credentials and they're like, okay. And they gave me to one scientist. And it's like, okay, we'll let him dive a couple of times. And then I could get more work done than his divers could dramatically more work. And they're like, wait, you could get, okay. And so I did about 40 dives in that first season. And then I met other people and people have just keep, keep hiring me because I can do that kind of work safely and effectively.
0: Fantastic. And what, what was it like uh, like first going to Antarctica? What was that? How did that feel?
1: It's like getting to live in a science fiction novel that you read when you were 10 or 11 years old. Wow. Uh, that's what it's like. And it's still like that for me. And I, I feel most comfortable, actually, and most at home of anywhere uh, living on the sea ice, which I have no idea why. Isn't that funny? Strange. Really weird. So really weird. So a few 15 years ago, I'd been to the ice three or four times. And I came back and I was watching a documentary about the Inuit, the the Eskimos, Baffin Island, there they are going across the sea ice and the place they were had the terrain exactly the same. As where I had just come from, I thought, "Oh, it looks like home." And I mean, I really thought to myself, "Where the, where the, is inuit where it looks like home." <laughs> um, so I, you know, there's, there's other people in the Antarctic program who've been there again and again and again. I've got 13 deployments, and I probably have a couple of more coming up. Um, and uh, I don't there's some people who are attracted to polar places I'm equally attracted to the Arctic in the north but there's not as much research there and uh, there's tons of work to do in the Antarctic program down south which is shut down more or less due to covid now which is a pain because I'm losing a few years that I could be going down there
0: yeah I mean it, it's such an incredible and such an incredible thing and just what kind of work do you do when you're down there just just roughly don't have
1: Uh, You know, could be collecting critters, could be installing and removing equipment, underwater research equipment. It could be surveying things, doing video surveys, and then the the huge amount of surface support work that you have to do to keep diving going there. All, All kinds of scientific diving there would be anywhere. Amazing. And you also take a camera underwater with you. I, I've always shot a lot of underwater video and I've shot several hundred hours of stuff uh, underwater, under Antarctic ice, probably the most of anybody in terms of time, amount of footage, because uh, I've been fortunate to have so many deployments. and I I have a now monthly, previously weekly, vid- for a year, uh, video show on the Cuneiform Records YouTube page. Um, and I... I'll will stick in video there from Antarctica and do new music with it and things like that. I've always done a lot of science interpretation performances, lectures where I'll talk about and show video about Antarctica in museums and aquariums and schools and then I always play guitar the same time as I do that while I talk. So I've, that's something I like like doing. A yeah, lot. and
0: there is a there is a short film you did about two seals. <coughs> which which you uh talk about and play along guitar to online i saw
1: yeah there's tons of stuff online,
0: <laughs> there yeah. is there is tons of stuff online i will yeah. i will definitely agree with that but yeah it does it fuses really well i think that um it's yeah i mean it just you, the way that you perform those pieces is it just it's it's sort of seamless you know it, it, there's definitely a lot of synergy
1: happening that means it's probably easy and fun (laughs) for me (laughs) Uh, it's if it's effortless it is effortless because it's easy and fun yeah to do that really exciting so what I normally do with
0: these podcasts is I put a list of hyperlinks for people to check out of things we're talking about so I'll make sure all of these uh, things get linked so people can go and check out these amazing films uh, that you've worked on uh, you have also t- played guitar underwater in Antarctica. I saw a picture of.
1: Well, that's just that, that's just sort of a joke, actually. That's actually we just we had a graphite guitar that could go underwater, and we we just took it underwater and pretend to play it underwater for 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 video <laughs> for fun because it's a it's a it gets kids' attention in schools really quick if you show that video.
0: I mean, you have. Uh, I can see a fair few guitars in the background there. They all look incredible. Yes,
2: yeah, too many. Too guitars, many. Yeah. Is there
0: such thing as too many guitars?
1: Yeah, there's too many guitars now. I mean, it'll be time to move in in three or four or five years, and it's I got to get rid of most things. And when it's time to move, even even farther from the city somewhere,
0: mm. You did send a guitar to Gwyneth for
1: Raymond. I did. You know that. Yeah, she's a terrific player that comes out of that Tacoma, Fahey kind of uh, school of guitar playing, and she's just terrific. And I had a couple of old 1890s guitars that both seemed to have strange spirits living in them seemed to be possessed and one of them said that they wanted to go live with her and she was coming to the US so i put it in a package and i sent it back to the east coast to somebody i knew that was going to be there and said give her this guitar and then she did said she did say to me i didn't i hadn't said anything she said does this guitar have a spirit in it or something and it it does, I think. Yeah, she
0: did. Yeah, she recollected the um, the the strange things that happened when she holds the guitar when I was speaking to her. Um, from eighteen ninety.
1: <laughs> yeah, eighteen ninety. So it was made by a guy named Bowman B O H M A N N, who was one of the first steel string guitar makers in America before Martin. He was in Chicago. Uh, Joseph Bowman. It's a uh, and it was something nobody cared about. And I've got a couple more here and you know they were they were 250 300 dollars 20 30 years ago when when nobody knew what they were and nobody cared then they're so rare nobody notices or nobody cares but it's on the Grizzly Man soundtrack with Richard Thompson Richard played that guitar and uh for the Werner Herzog film Grizzly Man and he said best sounding acoustic guitar i've ever played wow they're they they're really great but they're not around, you know it's part yeah find.
0: I mean, how do you look after and 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 is it wise to play something that old like uh, like I'm I'm not a guitarist at all, so you have to excuse my
1: is no it's it's fine. It's fine. It's perfectly serviceable. They were well made. it's still great. It's not gonna need any more any attention for 50 years probably wow.
0: I guess it's like old boots. They just
1: made them really well. It's... They just made them really really well. I've, you know I have some some bath towels upstairs that I've had since I was a kid I've had them since 1960 so that's 40, yeah, 6 that's 60 yeah, years 60 and yeah. and and these towels you know I could buy a towel I've towels I bought 5 years ago that fall apart that these are like still made great yeah man strange yeah um you, there's a really, really great...
0: Um, oh, I was going to mention Chris Watson, who I wonder if you know who, the work of sound, the sound recording artist Chris Watson. I do not. So he worked with um, like Richard Attenborough on... Oh, sorry, David Attenborough uh-huh. on, on all the wildlife recordings that they've done over the uh-huh. years. But he, I went to see a thing that he did called No Man's Land, which is recordings of the sea like uh, from Brighton Beach and then outwards into... Mm-hmm. The coral reefs in china and he also went to i'm gonna i wanted to bring it up because he went to antarctica and did some recordings for this for this project as well for this no man's land so um you get immersed in the sound of the ocean from from just being on the side of the beach in brighton off to like the big the great big great wide ocean and it's like um, a 360 degree sort of immersive thing that you lie down on the floor and listen that it's sounds really nice. nice. Yeah, yeah, No Man's Land. It's called, and um, yeah, I just thought maybe you might you might have crossed paths in Antarctica.
1: <laughs> nope. No. Nope.
0: Okay. He's uh, yeah. He's cool.
1: I mean, I'll see the BBC underwater cameraman that they, they, they we cross paths with them, but that's the only that's the main BBC people we cross paths mm-hmm. with is people that are doing specific you know Antarctica shows. Amazing,
0: really is uh, fantastic. So you said you have three you have like a uh, three main loves in life which is diving and music and film. Yeah, what sort mm-hmm. of stuff have you done with film?
1: Well, I was a commercial TV director mostly science documentaries for many years. That was the main way main way I made money for many years and I started working in film at a young age at 17. Um, as a production assistant, then a production manager, then an assistant director, then a director. And then I've worked on four films with my friend Werner Herzog and probably done something else, but I haven't really directed anything for years and years and years. We talk about, so I made made this film with Werner in Antarctica called Encounters at the End of the World. And I think about doing further encounters at the end of the world just with Werner as an executive producer. But it's but it's tough to get things funded to do that. So we'll we'll see. That could come up in 2004, maybe. We'll 2024, maybe. We'll. It's see.
0: a great. I think it's a great uh, title to go on to the next one. Further adventures. It, it completely makes sense. Um, there was a really interesting video I watched. You were doing like a rundown of your gear of your rig. You had like a guitar. Um, your, a lot of guitar pedals set up.
1: Um, right. A rig rundown, I yeah, call absolutely it. Yeah, absolutely
0: fantastic, because what you did in that video is something that is quite rare when someone's doing a rig rundown. You you justified the inclusion of every single one of those pedals
1: incredibly well. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's just. I wanted to buy <laughs> every single one of them as you
0: were demoing it. Because <laughs> you, you had like <laughs> six, there's like five or six distortion pedals, aren't there? Um, but it was, but yeah, the way that you were describing them and showing them, um, it, I... I was able to see the character that each one had and the reason why it was all in there.
1: Thank you. I didn't. I wasn't even aware I was doing that. You were so as well. Why.
0: And that wah... You you demoed something called the Wahoo pedal?
1: Right. A British pedal made by a company called Sonus, which is my favorite wah pedal. And it can sound like most others. It can do a lot of things others can't do. And the really amazing thing it does... So we all know about... Uh, Envelope filters envelope wah, where it reacts to the envelope to open and close the wah. This has pitch detection, and it can open and close the wah either depending on the absolute pitch or depending on if there's pitch changes. Uh. So if you bend if you bend up, it like steps down on the wah, or if you slide down, it backs off on the wah. Uh, and it's not absolute. It's from where, whatever points you start from, so to speak. So what a genius design. It, which, which, what, what a smart thing. And nobody's ever made another pedal that does that. And if I'm playing with distortion and through an amp, it gets confused with feedback and doesn't know if I'm sliding or not. And it sounds like really articulate, great pedal wah playing with different technique than a person would do. So it's, it's very easy, hands-off, interesting wah guitar that's not... I don't think it would be obvious to anybody what was going on with it, and I've still I've still never heard anybody else use it.
0: Yeah, I've I've never Ever. heard of it before. But never when, when you demoed it, it's sort of the tone of it reminded me of Jimi Hendrix. There's something about when you plugged it in, the way it was opening the wah for pitch.
1: Yeah, you can you know it. it The way you've set the filters, I probably had it sounding more like that type of wah, but you could make that particular pedal, you can configure it to sound like any kind of uh, other wah. Uh, Like I'm a big fan of the color sound wah, uh, and it's very easy to do the color sound wah. And it's a nice pedal too, because it is analog and it's processing, it's just digital in its control. Mm. So it it does sound it doesn't sound granular or fake like a lot of uh you know there's there's pedals envelope and wah pedals that uh convert things to digital to do that and they just they sound terrible and it's like people can't hear how terrible they sound it's strange.
0: Yeah, I mean you did mention in an interview um about MP3s and about the f- fidelity of music that uh is acceptable now.
1: It's sad. Yeah, it's really bad fidelity is acceptable and a lot of kinds of musics don't survive in bad fidelity. You know, post-World War II classical music, whether it's Sonatas or Stockhausen or Conlon Nankero or Takemitsu or Ligeti, it doesn't survive in low-res music. The, the point of the music is gone where something like Bach does survive largely in low res music because it's just about pitch and harmony and uh, where those pitches and harmonies are arranged in time Um, but when music's about other things than that it doesn't survive in the low res Mm. so a lot of people are, are missing out on a lot of music um, and people who buy LPs now, they're so poorly mastered and so poorly pressed, they sound much worse than CDs and people are being, unless it comes from an audiophile label, people are being sold this bill of goods, stuff that sounds just terrible. Uh, I noticed they, the Hendrix Estate put out new, recently a few years ago, new LPs, new remastered from the original masters of all the Hendrix L- L- LPs. And I was with the, they sent him to a famous mastering engineer, friend of mine. And I was over at his house and he said, look at this. And he put on Access Bold as Love from the new thing. I said, that doesn't sound very good. He says, watch this. Here's my college copy of Access Bold and Love, which is all scratched up. He put it on. All of a sudden there was depth and 3D. And I said, why is it so bad? He says, they just used the CD masters to make the LPs. And then they did a bad job of mastering it and they made it more mono. And there's, all, and there's all kinds of phase cancellation and stuff going on. So if something where they're pretending to take care, like a major Hendrix release in mastering does that bad a job of mastering, it, it's horrifying mm. to me, to, what, to what, what gives music life to me.
0: Yeah. What, what, Henry, what do you think we can do? Like, what do you think people can do to try and um, maintain or, or, or keep audio fidelity? Not possible. much.
1: I mean, these people are just listening. Th- these people are just listening to music on their phones over Bluetooth headphones, you know, or on the speaker on the phone, and they don't care, and they don't know to care because they haven't heard live music much. No, they haven't. And most kids in the United States go through high school without ever hearing a live music performance. All they hear is DJs playing stuff mm. through a PA. Uh, that's a big difference. So. Different places, different things. But I know here in the U.S., younger folks have no younger folks. I mean, people under (laughs) thirty have no idea uh, how what music sounds like through a good playback system. They've never heard it. And when I when we when I was a kid in college, everybody you know prided the speakers they had in their dorm room and how good it sounded. and, And
0: absolutely
1: whether 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 loud or soft depending on what kind of music they had you know kids in dorm rooms cared about the sound of the of the music and the playback and and that's gone and there's no awareness of it anymore so maybe it'll come back i don't know
0: yeah i think dynamics are so important aren't they like nuances and details they're so yeah important.
1: no no dynamics no sophisticated timbre the pop music now is like the you, you know the lowest audio quality pop music that there's ever been since the early 1900s <laughs> Uh, in, in terms of recording reproduction yeah. Yeah. I
0: think in I don't know, in, in the circles that I'm in I think ever, people are quite conscious of, of good quality audio, but you're right I think yeah, the, but, but, the but, majority the mainstream
1: You're talking about 1 or 2% 0.1 less, or 2% less yeah. <laughs> yeah. <100%. laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's
0: interesting um, Like I lived, in, I lived in Russia for a little while I lived in Siberia so just in terms of audio quality uh, obviously when you go Somewhere people share tracks with you, they share songs um, via MP3 or whatever. It was really funny when people were giving me uh, these Russian songs to play. I noticed all of the bit rates of all of the MP3 files were like really low. So there were people giving me songs that they thought were really good, and I, I couldn't even listen to it because the quality of it was so bad that the hi hat was just like. There was no treble like it didn't yeah um,
1: yeah aliasing noise yeah. yeah. so it was really yeah. funny
0: that to them or to some people the standard the standard is already quite low and they're not they're not even able to differentiate that that sounds like crap
1: yeah that's 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 what I'm talking about you know and I don't move in the circles of where people listen to stuff of that low quality very often but when I but when I'm out in the real world meeting with I'm in Antarctica in the lab I hear what you know the scientists and people and graduate students listen to and it just sounds awful and they don't know they have no idea yeah interesting that the um you also
0: pointed out your plasma plasma pedal distortion thing uh, in that rig rundown which is like a gas tube isn't it distortion
1: uh it it's a it's it's like yes it's a a, a plasma tube distortion um, from guys from Latvia came up with that pedal and we've been very successful with it and they've had several interesting pedals since then. Uh, game changer audio isn't it? Game Game changer audio seems like a pretentious name, <laughs> it is, does, but they're nice. It? <laughs> but they're nice guys. They actually came and. Uh, after one of their first nam show where they had that they they drove up the california coast and came and visited and all came to the house for lunch oh, and went wow. for a big hike
0: amazing yeah
1: and and they yeah after a big after a big music trade show in los angeles
0: yeah do you do the nam show do you do you go there have you been
1: normally i would normally i go every year to the winter nam but uh not since the covid times and i don't think They'll be ready to do it again. I'm skeptical to see if they'll be able to do it next year or not. We'll see.
0: Yeah, what has the last sort of year or so looked like for you? What what sort of things have
2: you been up to?
1: Well, since no concerts, um, what, what's been dominating things for me is for a year, I did a weekly uh, video show with sometimes archival things and new things and remote collaborations with people. And I just dialed that back to monthly four months ago. Uh, so I'd spend, when I stopped doing it weekly, it was suddenly like I had four extra days in every week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, you know, i I've And it kind of dominated everything. I have projects I should have been finishing that I wasn't getting finished. I have a wonderful record I made uh, a year ago last March in London with Ray Russell, which I keep saying I'm going to mix this week, and I'm hoping to get it mixed next week. And so that can come out. But uh, I'll mix it. no I've got it here I just need to I just need to sit I just need to sit down and get it right uh, and fix a bunch of little things
0: yeah what is your process of like um, yeah putting things out like how do you put records out nowadays
1: well some you know sometimes you sometimes you make a record and then you try to find a label for it and sometimes it easily uh, gets sold and with no effort and sometimes it hangs around for years and then I have a label myself that uh, I'll put things out on physical product CD. Uh, so I have a couple of those coming that uh, uh, need need to come out soon, and it would take longer to try to find another label for them. So still can sell physical product.
0: Mm. And do you, are you are you mixing, do you, do you always mix your records? Do you, and uh, mastering yes. and stuff like that? How do you approach yeah. those? Yes.
1: Things? So I when I first started to make records in the late 70s, um, because I'm very technical and enjoy talking to stuff, I enjoyed meeting the mastering engineers, cutting the lacquer discs, and became friends with them. And they taught me basically how they listened, how they thought, and what they did as I would sit with them mastering record after record after record, many, many records, (laughs) lacquer mastering sessions, I was there with them. Um, And then sometimes they were also recording engineers and I'd make albums with them. So I learned all the basics of mastering for LP and mastering for good sound and stereo field and EQ and all these things from these engineers. I learned... um, from like 1977 through 1987 or so, and then in the modern world with our digital audio workstations and all our plugins to do mastering here, uh, I've learned to apply what I've learned about psychoacoustics and physics of sound and uh, how music can be changed in stereo mastering to to do that with those things. So I I can it's easy for me to master things. So they sound good for me, and I keep, and then I end up in mastering a lot of my friends' albums, so they don't have to send it to somebody who makes it sound worse, <laughs> which oft, oft, often happens with experimental music when they don't. If it, you know, there's there weren't as many bad mastering engineers in the old days when it was just lacquer cutting because they had to learn, and if they weren't doing a good job, the market would determine that they wouldn't get any more work from a record company. Um but nowadays I am just shocked some when they over compress things, make things super loud to where they sound they really don't sound good, so I don't know mm, I don't know. so so i so I do it mostly myself, but I've done it forever, you know, so
0: it must have incredible. you must have had such a great insight into like just seeing somebody else work and watching their process and uh, knowing their headspace as well while they're working is is another as you mentioned is a very valuable thing to know.
1: Yeah, and they you know they usually wouldn't have the clients who were interested in that stuff was just sent in by the record company or sometimes there just would be you know a rock guy there who didn't really care or a classical person who didn't really understand and uh <laughs> Uh, they, you know, I think they were they were excited to, to explain why they were doing what they were doing and what they knew. And they could listen with bigger ears than I had. And I think that they were aware of that. And they were aware of trying to teach me to hear things the way they heard things and to rec- direct their attention in listening to audio on speakers in ways that I could not originally and have since learned. And I still learn things all the time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a fantastic outlook to have to always be uh, learning things. Like, such an amazing outlook. Because, yeah, the whole life we're all learning, aren't we? We're learning every day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, What advice would you give to someone who was, say, going to, like, master their own record or mix it? Like, um, it doesn't have to be, like, VST examples, but, like, what advice would you give to someone who is mastering their own material?
1: (sighs) You know, I'm sure that there's some place online to learn those things that's good, but I don't know because what the place online to learn those things, either for free or for some little course you can buy, but probably there's something like that. And I, I would advise study and learning, or sitting side beside a, a good mastering engineer and have them explain what they're doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's good advice. I think um, I had to, I spoke to a man called John Astley in one of the early episodes of this podcast, and he produced a few Who records. Um, and he later went on. He's now a mastering engineer, and he mastered Abba and Rolling Stones and uh, hundreds of great bands. And um, yeah, it it was. I, I he actually mastered one of my tracks as well. So I have first-hand experience of sending off a master to someone who really knows what they're doing and having it come back and it knock my socks off, like, yeah. big style. I, I yeah. didn't even recognise the track. <laughs> <laughs> Almost.
1: Yeah. <laughs> really,
0: really commendable, commendable stuff. Yeah, you. what, what, do, you think, what do you think it is a, that, that has drawn you to experimental music? What is it about um, the sort of...
1: Probably... That it's like the science fiction novels I enjoyed when I was a little kid in elementary school. I'd read all these science fiction novels and I enjoyed the world building at how they, the author would try to create a new world or set up different rules and things like that. So I think I do look at uh, making music that way uh, as an imagination thing yeah I think that's that, that that that's that' that's that's probably what it comes from for me yeah
0: it's very i think the the sort of strict way that music is sometimes taught in like a sort of a box of what you need to what how you need to do how you need to perform with a guitar for example um yeah it's really admirable to to make experimental music and to make uh like abstract music because um yeah there are no rules really are there <laughs>
1: No, but you can make up new sets of rules and see what kind of results you get with them too. You know, you can, all those kind of things just to try, it's experimenting. And I guess, you know, those science fiction authors from Robert Heinlein and so forth on were were experimenting with ideas about science and society and how people lived and uh, things like that. And they were experimenting on in, in these imagination laboratory of a book they were writing. And I'll think about music that same way.
2: Mm.
0: It's great that you you used to call it sort of world building. I've heard other people express their music as being like that, um, sort of quite a visual place to go to.
1: You know, what's always struck me as strange is I've I've met many science fiction authors I liked very much. Science fiction authors are generally very conservative in their musical tastes. They're not conservative in many other kinds of tastes that they have, um, you know, from food to lifestyle to movies. But there always seem to be very few science fiction writers who th- relate to experimental music. Is that, that seems strange to me. It does seem that strange, weird? yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. If they're dealing yeah, with we're... other dimensions and things beyond our yeah. realms of possibility.
1: <laughs> right, but then they're just listening to ABBA or... or or Dvorak, you know.
0: <laughs> I, um, I really enjoyed your interview with Terry Riley. Thank you. you did in 2005, was it?
1: Right. That was done for a DVD that was never released of uh, the film he made with Arlo Acton, Music with Balls. I've always loved Terry Riley. He's a huge influence on me. Uh, his music is so deep and so wide ranging. Uh, and, and he's such a wonderful human being to talk to and to spend time with. And he's always been uh, really helpful and kind to me. Uh, I, I'm on one of the anniversary recordings of uh, In C when his, his son, Jan Riley, first recording on guitars, going on to be a successful guitarist to make a lot of recordings, a lot with his dad, is Jan and I were playing next to each other, and Terry was singing behind us in this large ensemble with Kronos string quartet and other people and that's like a, a highlight of my life I you know when imagine. you when 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 your hero's <laughs> singing behind you <laughs> on his on his seminal piece of creativity uh in c you know that 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 just doesn't happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. No, that. I mean, that's incredible. Really incredible. And he's he's playing with an Ace Tone. He's got an Ace Tone keyboard.
1: That's just one I we borrowed for him to do a demo, because I really wanted him to demo how he does the stuff with his hands. And how he, you know, I knew what he did with the delays, and I understood it. But I thought very few people did. And I think it's explained very well, the stuff he did with uh, the... The, uh, was I was originally called Time Lag Accumulator at the San Francisco uh, Tape Music Center. Cool. Is there a band? And then, the, then sorry, go Pardon? I was going to say, is there a and band then, uh, called
0: that? Because that's a great name that's for
1: a, a band. That's a, that is a good name. Um, and um, then he was the master of that delay with the two Revoxes thing, uh, which he'd learned from an engineer. But he figured out what to do with it and how to play with the short delay and slapback delay and feedback delay. He figured all that stuff out. And then later, when when Eno shows it to Fripp and then they ca- start calling it Frippertronics, well, no, it's just t- it's the Terry Riley thing that he'd been going on for decades before. Come on. Um, but uh, Terry would, in the old days, use that to play long-duration concerts, whether two hours or also all-night concerts. So I liked, playing the, the trance kind of stuff in that mode and I, I use digital delays to do that for a while and I'll do it with plugins through a laptop now um, and I like playing long performances. There's an event that Happened in San Francisco Bay Area here usually every year, but it was canceled the last two years due to COVID. Where I'd always play for play a five-hour guitar solo, kind of in that style, which I like. Yeah, I like
0: doing. Was it. that for? I read that you did that for Garden of Memory. Garden, Garden of Memory. Yes. Amazing. Yes. What happens to you? I, mean, in I those did, five uh, hours. Where do you go?
1: I don't know. I just leave. It's <laughs> nice because I don't have to talk. You know, so <laughs> normally people stop and start, and uh, you know, then the audience talks to them in different rooms because it's all in different rooms in a big building and it's very informal and I like it because I don't have to talk to anybody I can <laughs> just play play <laughs> and they come for a while then they leave <laughs> don't have to talk to anyone I
0: totally relate to that feeling man I can totally relate to that I mean I would not have expected you to have said, explained it like that but um, I yeah, I can relate to that sometimes it's easier just to jam than speak isn't it
1: you know what I do that's funny It shows is I never go in the dressing room, if I'm with a band or a group of people, I never go in the dressing room. I do the sound check and then I just stay in the hall. And if I stay in the hall when people come in, nobody pays any attention to me and I don't have to talk to anybody, then I just go on the stage and play and then leave at the end and <laughs> never, <laughs> never go in the dressing room. <laughs>
0: Uh, That's brilliant. And you also talked about not really uh, practicing either, like not really... I
1: I don't really practice. I generally, the only time I play the guitar, and that's pretty pretty much always true, is performance, recording, um, fixing technical issues, changing strings, things like that, learning difficult composed parts that I have to... So I will... Quote, practice if I have to play some difficult composed music and I have to learn it, but I don't practice improvising. Yeah. I kind of, I find it's more special if I save the guitar just for recording or performance. But like, I've got a record coming up with a really great Russian guitarist and uh, who mainly works in the blues idiom, and we're doing an album of uh, J.B. Lenoir, a great Chicago bluesman who died. 66 did he die, J.B. Lenoir, of his songs. Nobody pays attention to him. And we're doing them all in different genres. Oh, nice. So some are genres I can't play. Like I want to do one in Peruvian psychedelic cumbia style from the 70s. So that means I have to figure out how the rhythms work and how to tell the drummer what to do and how to play the cumbia guitar and what kind of chords they used and stuff. So I do have to, that I will have to play to figure it out and learn something but that's a you know a specific task for a specific gig so to speak or there's a madagascar particular kind of beat called boeji b-a-o-e-j-y that's very strange and mysterious that there's not much evidence of on youtube and i really want to do a boeji so i have to figure out how to explain it to the other guys and tell the drummer what to do and tell everybody what to do to do the boeji uh or we want to do we want to do one of JB Lenoir songs in the style of the seventies middle period, the Meters, the great uh, funk band from New Orleans. So I have to f- figure out how to do something that's like them, that's not just copying one of their songs. And you I'm know, sure you, so the, so sure you so so I'll do work. I'll I'll do work when there's stuff like that. But that means I have to do work, which would be like practicing. But I've never played scales or or anything like that. Let me just grab the guitar here, one second. So here's an Epiphone Triumph acoustic. So the first chords most people learn on guitar are like the... Mm -hmm. are the open position bar chords. But when I learned to play guitar, I want to learn to play like the British guitarist Derek Bailey. So the first chords I learned were and uh, and 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 and. Wow. So those were the first. Those were the first chords I learned to play. So I have a, a weird approach technically to the instrument, or you know, before I. You know, I learned the blues scale. Or the minor pentatonic scale. As you call it there. But then I was also learning things like Derek Bailey patterns. like That that are, you know, weird picking of isolated groups of strings. And, you know. Yeah, so. Well, thank
0: you very much. That sounded incredible. (laughs)
1: I learned you know I learned things in a weird way at first or say I really liked uh, Captain Beefheart Magic Band's music and I so I'd learned like guitar parts and um, and bass parts off Trout Mask Replica right away at first You know, you probably can't hear that as well, it's too quiet, but... Oh, I could, no, I
0: could, yeah, definitely get the flavor of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, So so I learned weird, unusual technical things as the first things I learned, and they were things that take more technical resources than playing rhythm guitar to a Shetland Islands folk song, you know, so... I, I, you know, I came in the side door at the wrong time and learned too much, and who know, who knows? So that so that so that that's led to uh, my peculiar approaches to everything.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very admirable approach. I really, um, yeah, I really admire the trajectories that you've gone on with your career and your exploration, and it, it, I think it's interesting that uh, you know, like scientific studies have been done on 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 people from all around the world, and in some cultures, dissonance. Is is um consonants, you know, like some some cultures feel dissonant differently.
1: My culture, yes, my culture. <laughs> that's that's what it's like that's what it's like where I come from, wherever that is. Yeah.
0: And <laughs> um, what's the one that people always talk about, the Romanian there's a Romanian choir that, that sing with quite dissonant uh notes.
1: Yeah, and they're not and they're different than they're not the Western tempered intervals. Mm. yeah and do you out of interest for a total guitar layman like what chords were you playing then those were all clusters with a lot of minor seconds in them they're they're not names for regular chord names for those but they're 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 clusters of uh, you know so like this typical Derek Bailey chord. so it's there's a minor second interval oops so it's all of those. Or, this is. Stuff with a lot of minor seconds. So then I learned all the Miles Davis. All those kind of Miles Davis fusion chords and things. I learned those before I could play a Joan Baez. Song. fantastic
0: it's i mean it evokes such strong emotions those those sorts of chords they, they 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 bring in sort of odd feelings don't they and it i think some people some people really dislike those sorts of sounds uh, because it makes them feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and then i guess you either allow it in or you don't
1: you know it might be that i don't hear those as harmonies but i hear them as timbres I just hear them as blocks of sound and colors. You know, I remember going to see... And this is something that the Norwegian guitarist, Terry Ripdal, had a similar experience. We went to see 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's film. I, I saw it actually the week wow. it opened. And um, it got to Ligeti's music, Jorgi Ligeti, the Hungarian composer, atmospheres during the psychedelic trip sequence. And it's was like that was the best music I'd ever heard. That was the coolest music. And it's not mu It's a music that's just about timbre and aggregate micro polyphony of lots of little tiny sounds put together. And there was no music like that before that, maybe a little bit in Japanese Gagaku orchestra, but not really. Um, and Korean court music, maybe, but not really. And, that was music that's super exciting to me, so I hear you know blocks of sound as colors and shapes and patterns in space. I don't hear them as the harmony of a chord the way most Western listeners probably just that was that was because of what i you know what I grew up with and sounds I heard on t v and the radio. I don't know
0: yeah you did you spoke about being able to sort of fit in with um shamanic style uh transcendental performances um Without having to the, take the drugs,
1: yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the old Salvador Dali thing. I don't need drugs. I am drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess. I don't know. I...
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, you said. Oh, I did actually write down a quote that was along these lines. Uh, I'm not a drug person, but I'm definitely a psychedelic guitarist.
1: Right. The psychedelic guitarist, just like psychedelic drugs, opens up. You know, the window. In people's minds to see other things. I'm a psychedelic guitarist in the sense that, I that's what I try to do is to open up people's minds to something else. But it's not to anything particular. I just try to open the door and let them see, or go where they want to go.
0: Yeah, I mean it makes it's a really good analogy, you know, because people see from all perspectives, more perspective.
1: I mean, you know, that's been around forever. There's you know, there's Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett at the UFO Club in nineteen what sixty-seven. <laughs> You know, doing that. You know that 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 that's been there in electric pop music. In the electric pop music I grew up with, that, that trying to do that. You know, that's what those guys were doing then a lot of the time, and it's not what they did later on. It's kind it's kind of forgotten. I don't know how much of there is of stuff like that now. It's a good question. Not in pop music much.
0: No, I mean there is. Where I mean, in Brighton, where I am, we do have some really good experimental music nights and that's fantastic to go there because, you know, every time that you go and see a performance, there's three performances each, every uh, once a month. Every time you go, you know, you're going to be like surprised by something. You're going to be wowed by something. You might be scared a bit by something. You might be made to feel uncomfortable, but it's such an incredible experience. I just, I wouldn't, I, it means the world to me to go to those things.
1: You know it is there it certainly is there I'm just saying it's not there in pop music on the on the radio or pop music that kids listen to nowadays uh you have to go to somewhere special yeah to find it and it was it was there in pop music and even in blues record 78s you know in the olden days that that kind of shamanic or transportational or psychedelic element it was there it's a record I'm looking forward to making which last time I was in In uh, London a week ago, I mean, uh, two years ago, last March. (coughs) So, a friend of mine, Chris Cutler, who was the drummer in Henry Mm Cow, most people don't know that in the ancient days before Henry Cow, he and Steve Hillage were roommates. Um, and Steve, they, they played together back then. And I, for so many years, I've wanted to make a record with Steve Hillage, whom I've never met and Chris Cutler. And they both said they would do it when we can do it again safely. And I've kind of, and that'll be a psychedelic record. I'm kind of excited about that. Oh,
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Would you be traveling down to London to, to do that?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I guess Steve has a studio that's near where Stonehenge is or somewhere like that. I have no idea. Yeah. We're, but but we'd, go, we'd go there and do
0: that. Oh, yeah. fantastic.
1: So I, I, look, I look forward to that. It may be a couple of years, but I look forward to that when it's safe for old guys to go do Amazing. that.
0: Amazing. Well, if you ever want to play in Brighton, there's always a slot at Spirit of Gravity for you, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, no, I'll check in. I'll check in and see. Yeah, I haven't played. I played a gig in London in uh, t- two years ago, March, but I hadn't played in London for a long time before that. I played with uh, Eddie Prevo, great drummer. And then we made an, an album, which recently came out, uh, called uh,
2: "What's It Called?"
1: I can't remember. But they, and there's another album of us coming out, quite good. Fantastic.
0: And if people want to find your material and go through your discography, your extensive discography, where do where can people find your records?
1: I don't know. You just search online. You can look on. It's not all. I don't have a website that lists things really. So, you know, Discogs seems to have about half of the stuff I'm on, but half of it's mysteriously missing. So, D-I-S-C-O-G-S, (laughs) Discogs.com.
0: Um, I was just going to say there was one thing I wanted to ask you about um, a guitar that you have with a, it's a Swedish,
1: a temperate, true, true temperament. temperament neck. Yeah, there's a bunch of those around. So you can look up true temperament. It's probably truetemperament.com. Um a guy empirically determined what you do to need to make a guitar play in tune. Because of the physics of core diameters, strings, and windings, a guitar is not really in tune very easily. So what he did is he made a guitar test bed that had <clears throat> each fret broken into six little pieces that could be moved back and forth. Wow. And then he moved them to determine what would, uh, what would be in tune. And of course, there's many different kinds of in tune. And he thought about that and decided what kinds. But so it's wiggly frets, <laughs> not straight frets, or what you need to have the guitar be really in tune, uh, like a Hindustani musician would be in tune, or not like the equal temperament of the piano, but different kinds of just intonation and stuff. He, so he he came up with like three different, they came up with three different flavors of intonations that they, that they made. And I really like playing with, guitars and that tuning if i could push a button and have all my guitars change to that those kind of frets i would but it's a it's a specialized thing not popular works really well for metal music works really great for all kinds of music
0: i can imagine it does because i mean i I looked at my own electric guitar that i have in my living room afterwards and was like yeah of course like a straight line across all of the frets doesn't really make i mean it looks nice to the eye but I can understand that that doesn't actually tonally reflect the exact scale.
1: You know, when people play fretless instruments, whether it's a double bass or a cello or a fiddle or a trumpet or whatever where you can bend the notes, they don't play to those. Miles Davis is not playing the white and black tempered keys on a piano notes. He's playing other notes. Uh, So... Th- this is a, more like a set of those other notes that's more agreeable mm. to my ear.
0: And you also mentioned in that same video about you wish that every guitar had a 27 inch
1: scale. I well my I've got large hands or long fingers so I like I like guitars with longer scales like a Gibson which has a short 24 and a half inch scale or a Fender 25.5 um Twenty-seven would be nice for me if all guitars were, but that's just a, a physical thing that would work what better for me, and it also sounds more in tune.
0: Ah, oh, okay, yeah. I just I wondered why that was. You see, as a non-guitarist, I was thinking, what is the reason for that?
1: Yeah, it's well, it's with straight frets, it's a little more in tune the longer the scale, and because um, it's less wrong at each fret when there's more space. Um, but um, it just physically works better for my hands. And I have a number of guitars that have longer scales among the too many guitars you see here.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Henry, is there any sort of mantra or philosophy that you go by in life? I know this, the, these things change all the time. Is there anything that you're currently sort of feeling in that, in that regard? I don't
1: know. It's, it's like the CPR class where you do, do no harm. <laughs> I don't know. I do no harm. I don't know. You know, I just like to improvise and I like to experiment and I like to have fun. It's those three things. It's simple. It's really simple, and do right. no harm. We can throw that in. It would, you know, it's probably
2: a good yeah, idea.
0: Yeah, I think there was, a, there was a, an interview where you listed the character traits of people that you like to work with, and um, they were just such incredible things that were just beyond musicality about people who are being generous and people who are open-minded. and.
1: You know, it wasn't I was looking for that. I was probably talking about, without realizing it, describing people I've worked with in the past like David Lindley, Derek Bailey, um, Richard Thompson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, Leo Smith, where they're, they're just generous and kind and creative and sharing. You know, it's just I've been so lucky to get to work with so many folks like that. Mm.
0: Well, I think people have been very lucky to work with you as well, man. I really respect you and... Um really admire what you've done and your outlook. Thank you. Thank oh, you. It's Thank really you. fantastic. And also like your, your ability to, to um, transfer ideas to people who are maybe non-musical. I think you're also very brilliant at doing that.
1: Well, having getting to do the, the science performances, that helps with that a lot. And also, you know, it helped a lot. Um, I was a radio DJ for years on the same non-commercial listener support station i grew up on kpfa in berkeley i grew up listening to in junior high school and high school when i got back to california after college for 15 or so years i was a dj on there with a you know in the morning morning concert with 250 300 000 people listening and so you're so you're being an interpreter, like an interpretive person in a museum, you know, showing people all these things and trying to do it without talking too much. So I, I did learn, I think, something doing that, and that's that's an influence on me. Not just listening to, to radio and freeform radio, but doing freeform radio myself. I learned before I played guitar, even, because uh, I was on college radio too. I learned. A lot about how to communicate about music to a regular non-musical audience.
0: I think you, Maybe. yeah, you really do seem to have a skill to interact and, and and unify your yourself with people from all over the world. It's like such an amazing, amazing skill.
1: And you know, a weird habit I have, I've noticed in teaching. So I teach at my friend Richard Thompson's Frets and Refrains Summer Music Camp in Upper New York State. Where people like Martin Simpson, Happy Traum, and other people are teaching too, and I try to teach people to sound like themselves or be creative. It's kind of a a, a deprogramming uh, course in a way. So I notice I have this really weird habit because before I tried to teach music stuff to anybody, I was a dive instructor, and I was a trained in Nawi which is the the old school form of dive instructing in in the United States. And in scientific diving, the really old school, really meticulous thing. And the interesting thing about diving instruction is you can kill the student in the class by making a mistake. And from my point of view, you can kill the student 10 years later by giving them improper training. They're dead. Uh, I suppose it's like that in martial arts training and Japanese sword training or things like that, kendo in the old days when it, was a, when it was used for fighting, that you can kill the student if you teach him properly. And so I, when I teach music, I tend to take it, you know, I'm being light and funny, but I'm tending to really, you know, I don't want to kill the student later on by making a mistake. So it makes me care about teaching when I get to teach which is just group situations more than some people might or to feel that I, I've i got, you know, ridiculously feel that I have more responsibility uh, for them later on after they're gone. You know, I got to make sure they keep having fun. I've got to make sure they sound like themselves.
0: Brilliant man, that's such an admirable way to look at the teaching process. It's like investing in the future of, of the people who are in front of you, not just making sure they know yeah. it now. That's fantastic. Yeah, or
1: being a res- being responsible for them. Mm. Take I I guess, you know, it, it just come and that is true in diving, absolutely, because it's easy to kill them later on <sighs> with bad instruction and that happens all the time and all the big dive instruction agencies are mainly their main concern is limiting liability so that the when the students die later on, they can't come back at the instructor or the agency uh, for liability. So all they do is worry about liability. They don't worry as much as they should in sport diving about making people safe so they won't have accidents. They worry about how if they die and have an accident, how can we stop them from suing us? Mm. So, you know, that's wrong to me. And what's wrong is to take responsibility and make sure that the people don't die by teaching them, right? Yeah.
0: Amazing, man. Well, I'm sure you're an amazing, a brilliant teacher, and uh, as well as being a fantastic musician, photographer, adventurer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been great to speak to you, Henry. Thank you so much for speaking to me.
1: Thank you very much. This was my pleasure.
0: And here is Henry's five-death haiku.
1: in 1973 or 1974 Frank Zappa said on stage at the Roxy um, he said jazz isn't dead it just smells funny and then he proceeded to do something about that and he worked with a lot of great jazz players and he used them to help do something about that But there were also a bunch of guys before that who thought jazz was smelling pretty funny, pretty ripe. And they all did something about it, sometimes very radical things. And I'd like to submit five death haiku for five gentlemen heroes of mine who I knew personally five guys who did something about that funny smell. First up. Sonny Sharrock, The creator of free jazz guitar. The first guy there. The first guy to take the guitar where jazz players like Cecil Taylor, Albert Eiler, um, John Coltrane had been, and take it even farther. So, this haiku is for Sonny. Sliding beyond frets. Brighter than the brightest sun. You lit the future. inspiration of mine, a close, very supportive friend, was Derek Bailey, the godfather of British free improvisation, and one of the guys who's made the most radical technical leaps on guitar ever. So this is for him, for Derek Bailey. Further beyond jazz... Out past anything known before, swing beyond the now. more conventional um, commercial path but a conventional path that he designed himself was Larry Coriel when he came to New York City in the mid 60s playing in the Free Spirits, Gary Burton Bob Moses Jim Pepper he took country, rock jazz, put it all together I don't think since Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys did anybody take all those separate things and just treat them as the same thing together and Coryell's one of the first guys to do that on electric guitar it's for him no differences jazz, rock and all music you fused everything Somebody who fused more elements of music, more ways of playing music, more theories of music, than almost anybody I could think of is the unsung Pete Cozy. Grew up in Arizona, moved from Phoenix to Chicago, was in the ACM, was with with Miles Davis for three years or so, mid-seventies. He used to go out in the desert mountains at night in Arizona when he was young. Get a battery powered guitar amp maybe he powered it off his car and play at night looking at the desert sky the stars the guitar echoing off the mountains Pete Cozy Pete Cozy polymath of strings so many systems you knew in the sky. Something about it in a different way than the other guys. This is for him. Air sculpture is jazz. Freaking out is process. Shut up and play.
0: What a lovely guy Henry is. I really, really enjoyed that chat. And um, yeah, the expanse of work that that guy's done over the years is really, really phenomenal. It's also really inspiring that he would ask his mentors and uh, anybody to collaborate with him and make an album. I love that it's free, open, growing spirit. It's really, really infectious, I find. And yeah, all the stuff he's done in the Antarctica as well is tremendous. Check out his interviews with Terry Riley and Derek Bailey too. What a guy. On the show next time, we have a tremendous loop artist who's also an American. She won a national competition in loop pedal performance uh, a few years ago. So yeah, we have a really, really interesting chat for you then. Thank you very much for listening. Please support the podcast if you can on PayPal or on Ko-fi. I'm Madeira and we'll rendezvous soon.